Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAP's Middle East Political Science podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, joining us today is Ariel Ahram. He's from the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech University, author of a brand new book, Break All the Borders, Separatism and the Reshaping of the Middle East, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Ariel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the book. Uh, what were you trying to accomplish with the book and uh, what what are the main arguments? The book responded to, I think, an assumption about the way the Middle East worked, especially after 2011. Everyone talked about state failure, but no one had any idea what the real forces were that were emerging from state failure. The presumption about the region was that if the states broke, they, were broken, they would break into a million little pieces. In fact, I found that there were only certain actors in certain countries that were really pushing to redraw borders. Most of the political contestation in the region was focused on trying to take power in the center, not to break away. What I wanted to do then with the book was to focus on the actors who were really pushing to address territorial issues within the state. So give me some examples. Like what are, what are some of the, the major ones where you did see uh, this kind of separatist movement and maybe like places where you might have expected to see it but didn't? The book has four chapters dealing with the four major cases of separatism that came out of the 2011 uprisings. So the first was Kurdistan in, in Iraq and then in Syria, the second in southern Yemen, the third in eastern Libya, Cyrenaica, and the fourth was the Islamic State, which is a, a kind of a special, special form of separatist movement. I think what was especially interesting, though, was that some countries where you could have imagined that deep sectarian or ethnic cleavages would have led to separatist claims, they didn't emerge. So there was very little separatist movements in Tunisia. There was very little separatist. There is very little separatist movements in Egypt. Bahrain, which has probably the, one of the deepest ethno-sectarian cleavages, never saw a major separatist claim. What the Bahrainis were protesting about was control over the central government, not separating from it. So let's talk about some of these uh, modal cases where you do see these pushes for separatism. Um, I think everyone's kind of familiar with the Kurds in in Iraq, especially. Um, what about Libya? Libya it was one of the most unexpected cases. It's unexpected on a number of different ways. It's unexpected for one reason, because very few researchers were working on Libya before 2011. So I think there was just a, a lack of knowledge about Libya overall. It was also unexpected, though, because before 2011, Libya was considered to be a pretty homogeneous country. There was a, a, a there were there there was a, a, a cleavage between um, sort of African groups in the south and and um, and Berbers, but the country was overwhelmingly Muslim, probably 95% Arabic speaking. Where would a separatist movement come from? What I looked at, or what I found when I looked at the Libyan case though, was that the separatist movement in Eastern Libya in Cyrenaica, Arabic Barca, emerged based on the, on the idea that they were reviving a relatively recent failed state, the Emirate of Cyrenaica, that had actually pre-existed the formation of the United Kingdom of Libya by a year. And the movement for Cyrenaica's independence or separation pushed the idea that this, this failed state had lost its autonomy and now had a chance to regain it thanks to the, the uprisings. And in fact, what I found was that that was actually the pattern that persisted across the cases, that in every country uh, that had seen an uprising, if there had been a history of a dead state, a conquered state, a lost state in its, in its recent past, those, st those states reemerged during the crisis. 
So like Southern Yemen, for example, had a pretty recent history. Yes. Uh, you don't have to go too far back in history to say that, that Southern Yemen was a viable political concern. I think the, the more surprising cases, though, in Libya, um, perhaps in Kurdistan, uh, were, were places where most of the outsiders never really considered these states to be viable, never considered, the, never thought about them as, as historically important. It turns out that the separatist actors made them historically important when the uprisings occurred. So you, if you compare, for example, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan to uh, the Syrian Kurds, how does that play out given the very different types of, uh, of kind of legacies you have there? The comparison is really apt because the Kurdish nationalist movement has always been divided on a number of different on a number of different bases. But the Iraqi Kurds had a much stronger claim to to actual statehood. There was a kingdom of Kurdistan that existed in the 1920s. There were continual Kurdish uprisings in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, there was the Mahabad Republic in 1946 and 47 along the border between Iran and Iraq. Uh, and there was a federalist structure that was not always implemented and not always honored, but existed based on the idea that the Kurds had a separate claim to self-determination in Iraq. In Syria, that claim to self-determination was extinguished very quickly. There were some experiments with Kurdish autonomy in the far northeast in the Jazeera region um, in the 20s under the French mandate, but they, they, they ended very quickly. And Syria... Syrian, Syrian nationalism never accepted the idea that there would be a, a, a separate political entity within the Syrian space. What that meant was that a lot of Kurdish activism in, within Syria had to work with, with and through existing political parties and couldn't, had a hard time articulating themselves as a Kurdish ethno-nationalist movement in the way that their compatriots in Iraq were able to. Even after the uprising, the, the PYD in Syria tried very hard to try and hide its, its ethno-sectarian roots. They talked about being a democratic federation. They talked about their inclusion of all ethnic groups. But I think anyone who's spent any time looking very closely at this group, it's, it's clear that this is, a, this is a, a Kurdish ethno-sectarian group. It's closely tied to the PKK. It uses a kind of leftist, uh, uh, a leftist language, a leftist mm -hmm. discourse to try and to, to try and make itself appealing to other actors, but in its core, it's a Kurdish movement, and, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with with that. But it was much harder to articulate itself in that in that way because they didn't have the basis of a previous state in the way that their Iraqi brethren had. So if you go back to a case like Yemen, I mean, I think it's very clear that we've seen this reemergence of a southern movement, and uh, you know they're putting their claims on the table in the context of the war and everything else. But how how would you weigh factors like you know things happening now, like the, the political issues such as you know the neglect of the South in uh, in the the federal plan that they came up with um, back in 2014, um, versus like the deeper legacies of uh, these memories and the the you know kind of the older institutions that you talk about. I mean, how do how do you weigh those in terms of like current political grievances versus these historical legacies? I think current political grievances and current political uh, circumstances provide an opportunity, but there are political entrepreneurs and political actors who are trying who who are trying to find a, a way to seize those opportunities, and the way is not always direct. So it it's certainly the the the, the PDRY, the old South, Southern Yemen, is a basis for the Southern Transitional Council's claim to to for independence. But there are other groups that imagine not a restitution of southern Yemen, but a restitution of the sultanates. So they talk about perhaps Mahra or Hadramat, 
which had had a kind of quasi-independence, mm-hmm. that those might be the bases for a new form of sovereignty or a, or a federal structure. The central governments themselves realize that these move, that these separatist movements are internally divided and have been trying to play off these different ideas of where the South really exists and where what territories it, it, it constitutes. The competing or, or kind of contradictory federalist plans that have come up in Yemen, really, even before the revolution, there have been there have been federalist plans. They try they try and exacerbate this tension, so they play off the tensions between Aden and the hinterlands in in in, in Hadramat and Mahra. They play they play off the tensions between these political entities that had existed before the emergence of of the South Yemen Republic. So let's go to the the like one of the big cases that I think you know it's the the title of the book Break All the Borders. Uh, it's the Islamic State, and uh, how do you how do you place this within the context of the argument you're making about these legacies of of, of states? The Islamic State was a very idiosyncratic separatist movement. One of the things that I argue in the book is that the Islamic State had these kind of two faces. On the one hand, it had a it had this outward facing argument about Islamic unity and pan, and and pan Islamic uh, cooperation, incorporating and appealing to the entire Islamic Ummah. But in its practices, in its kind of core, the Islamic State was really driven by a group of Iraqi Sunni Arabs who had different kinds of ties to the Ba'ath regime. They were not necessarily Ba'athists, but they had they had grown up in the legacy of the Ba'ath regime. And they had grown up with, in a country that had provided a system of Sunni privilege, that had assumed that Sunnism, Sunni Islam should be the dominant Islam, whether secular mm-hmm. or religious, but that this, that this country belonged to them. And when the country ceased to belong to them in, 2000, in 2003, they made arrangements to try and build a different kind of political, a different kind of political order. What they did was they built off a kind of tribal political system that had pre-existed the formation of Iraq and Syria. They were very much the children of the Ottoman Empire, and you actually you, you see it in some of their own their their own um, motifs and discourses. Draw on a kind of late Ottoman discourse of Sunni supremacy. So the Islamic State is a global movement, is a movement of the Islamic Ummah, but it's also a separatist movement of the, of the Sunnis in in Iraq and of, and in Syria. To try and carve out their own polity, where Sunni Islam is sort of is has its has its right and, and has its correct and right place in the, in the political order at the top. So when you think about it like that, do you think that uh, the Islamic State, had it survived, um, would have been, would have been content to stay in those borders, or would it have continued expanding to break all the borders, like the maps that they would you know that they would put out there in their social media? I think that there there was a there was an idea within the Islamic State, especially in the early days, that the Islamic State had ter- was territorially demarcated, uh, and there's actually a, there's a, a kind of an interesting kind of ambiguity in the way the Islamic State described itself as whether it was the Islamic State in Iraq or of Iraq, and, and that very subtle prepositional difference is a suggestion about whether they saw themselves as being mm-hmm. a, a real Iraqi group that happened to have root that happened to have operations in Syria and other places, or whether it was a pan-Islamic group that happened to be in, that yeah. happened to be in, in Iraq and was intending to go elsewhere. A lot would have depended on how the international community responded to the Islamic State. Uh, I think that the Islamic State rightfully saw itself in, surrounded by, by enemies, and so they saw that they didn't think that they had much choice but to continue to expand. Had there been some kind of political resolution, some kind of... Some, um, there, there, it's possible that the Islamic State could have been brought into a federalist system Still not on the table in Iraq. It could have, you know, there 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 were ideas of creating a, fe- a federal a federal region for for Sunnis in Iraq. There were ideas about creating a federal system for Sunnis in Syria as well. 
those might have shunted some of the support that the Islamic State received had those had those programs been implemented. And then you would have seen a much more territorialized version mm-hmm. of, of Sunni ethno, uh, ethno-nationalism. So given the the prevalence of the separatist movements, at least the, the four that you focus on in the book, why, why do you think they have been so unsuccessful? Why, why have they not been able to break these borders if they're so weak and if you, they have these historical legacies that um, would seem to suggest that they would have some resonance? When I started writing the book uh, in 2013, 2014, I really expected that I would finish the book writing about Kurdish independence. <laughs> I really thought that I was going to finish, that there was going to be some kind of like valedictory uh, You, and the, Kur- you yeah. and the Kurds both. Yeah. And in fact, I wrote the book, I finished the book exactly the time that the referendum failed. Uh, oh, actually not the referendum. It was that, that the referendum happened and the, the political mm-hmm. movement failed. So I was, I was completely wrong uh, on that. <laughs> and and um, I apologize for that. I think I underestimated the willingness of the international community to tolerate um, new actors and, 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 allow, and allow new states to come forward. And there's been a kind of an oscillation in the way the international community relates to the separatist claims. In the first half of the book, I talk about the origins of, of Arab states as being based on a kind of consensus between a small set of the indigenous elites and the international community about mm-hmm. how states should form and how they, and once established that they should remain in place. That consensus was breaking down. Um, it, it was not, and not just in the Middle East. It broke down globally. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catalans and the and the, and, the, and the Scottish separatist movements also thought that the 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 international community was ready for new actors to come to the fore. They all proved uh, they all proved mistaken in that respect. So, if you go and you look, for example, then at Syria the way it is right now. Um, you know, you could view things in two very different ways. You could say that as long as you have an international presence in eastern Syria, that this will ultimately create the foundations for some kind of independent Kurdish state there. Or you could see the trends as encouraging them to go back to Damascus and come up and negotiate some kind of acceptable federal agreement so that coalition forces can leave. Now, what would you expect to see based on, you know, based on all that you've talked about in the book? Again, a lot will depend on how outside forces respond to the Kurdish, Kurdish request for protection, uh, how the U.S., how the Russians um, particularly um, treat the Kurds, who have been a, 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 not a perfect but a reasonably good ally. I think that the most likely outcome is the creation of something that looks very much, well, not very that looks something like what the, the, what the Kurds had in Iraq after 1991, which is a kind of a de facto state, an area that is technically legally still under the control of the central government, but that is operated outside of its, outside of its direct oversight and has some kind, of, some kind of military guarantee that it can continue to operate in this kind of gray zone, this de facto statehood. I think that, that is probably sort of somewhere in between the two, mm-hmm. the two poles of arguments that this is the beginning of an of independent Kurdish state. On the one hand, and on the other hand, this is just the beginning of uh, Syrian agglomeration, and that eventually Assad will take over all, will take back every ter- every inch of territory that he lost. I think that the the possibility that the Assad regime retaking all the territory that it's lost, I think, is not. Um, I think that's that's that would require a lot more push from the international community to, to make that happen, and I don't think that there's an appetite from it for for it from Russia. Even Iran, I think, is probably looking for a mm-hmm. looking for a, 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 a an escape route at this point. Um, I don't think that anyone is too worried, with the exception of Turkey, is that worried about a, 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 mm-hmm. a, a quasi-independent Kurdish de facto state. 
Well, it's interesting to compare. Like, the, basically, your cases break down into two types, right? You've got like the strong states in Syria and Iraq dealing with Kurds and and yeah. federal issues. And then you got the very weak states in Libya and Yemen dealing with uh, kind of these robust regional, you know, identities and like. Um, and so, you know, we've we've been talking about the uh, the Syria, Iraq, like strong states in the Levant. What about those weak states? You know, what level of regional autonomy do you think they could tolerate before it just stopped being a, a, a unitary state at all? I think that's a question that you'd have to ask the Libyans and the, and, and the Yemenis. I think that the, there, a lot of this is a kind of mental exercise on the part of the, the Libyan and the Yemeni elite. Uh, if you keep repeating the slogan that we're a unified country, that there can only be one Yemen or one Libya, um, how do you articulate that into, into practice is really the question. I don't think the international community really cares that much, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception possibly of the UAE, which seems to have some grand plan for, for, for South Yemen, for Aden and South Yemen. I don't think it matters very much to Italy or, or France whether Libya remains is federalized or unfederalized. They just want to see some kind of solution. Same goes for same goes for uh, 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 same goes for Yemen. So the question is whether the political elites will tolerate a system that genuinely puts political power outside of the mm -hmm. central government, gen that genuinely devolves political power uh, away from it. One issue in that in, surrounding that is that most of the kind of the global experience of federalism is that federalism comes out of state centralization, not out of state, state weakness. Hmm. Um, that's the um, Dan Ziblatt's work on federalism talks about how the, the, the best federal, the most efficient, effective federal structures come when very strong states deliberately hand over power. They don't come about through a kind of agglomeration where you have weak, where you have a, a weak central government and a lot of strong regional actors who kind of agree to go along. It comes from the central government devolving. Mm -hmm. That's not the pathway, though, that seems to be uh, this seems to be available to any of these countries. Well, let's, um, uh, one last question then is what about the dogs that don't bark? Um, you know, so you think of some like the, the classic cases of potential separatist movements, the kingdom of the Hejaz, the Basra, uh, yeah. region, um, which have not really made the kinds of separatist bids that you're talking about. Why, why do you think that some don't? Well, I think that there's a, there's a there's a unique historical exogenous shock that happens, which is the uprisings. I yeah. think that had there been an, had there been a real significant uprising in Saudi Arabia, I, I don't think it, I think it would have been very likely to see the Asir and the Hejaz making making noise about wanting to separate. Um, the same goes from Western Sahara. Um, the Palestinians are a special case of separatism, and there was a kind of push. To, mm -hmm. that, that coincided with, no, it wasn't exactly part of the Arab Spring, but coincided with the Arab Spring to say, this is our chance to actually separate from, the, from, from Israeli control. I think that where there are dead states and where there are actors who still think about the histories of dead states, they will take advantage of opportunities when states fail. The key, so we have a kind of proximate condition, which is the state failure, and then we have this distant condition, which is the dead state. When there is a, a, a moment of state failure and there isn't a, a, a dead state, a history of conquered states like mm -hmm. Tunisia or Egypt, you can have a lot of political contestation, but it's political contestation that is geared towards the center. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't doesn't try and doesn't try and displace uh, borders per se, but tries to take power in the capital. So when I when I when I listen to the argument, it seems to me like Basra is where you should be looking because you have yeah. an uprising happening right now, and you have the the memories and and the movement and the entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think so. I I, I think about Basra in some ways. 
Basra is very well integrated into the central government. I think there's an element in this, there's an element in, that I don't address very well in the book, which is that these, all of these, all of these separatist movements occur in, a, in essentially in hinterlands, in parts mm -hmm. of the, in the, in the least populated, least developed, historically most distant parts of the, of the, of the, um, of the, of the central government. And so those are the places that are also most likely to think about themselves in a separate way. I think if, for, I think Basra, especially Basra, there had there was movements for federalist claims in in, in southern Iraq. Uh, Syria was particularly pushed the pushed those ideas in the 2005 2010 mm -hmm. elections. Um, but if you're from Basra, the government seems to be doing okay by you. You actually have a great deal of of, of electoral weight. Uh, you're getting your services. You're doing a lot better than if you're from Nineveh, if you're from Mosul, where you really do, mm -hmm. where there's been a, a, a real dramatic loss uh, of, of political power and political influence. All right. We've been speaking with Ariel Ahram uh, from Virginia Tech University and author of the book Break All the Borders, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah.